We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The headlines remind us daily, the world is a dangerous place. The elites in charge say everything's fine, stop noticing, but you know better. And your gut knows that time is short to prepare for a world that is four missed meals away from chaos. My Patriot Supply has helped over three million families become more self-reliant and is the company Americans trust to prepare. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure their best-selling three-month emergency food kits. Each contain delicious breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Secure at least one food kit for each family member. For a limited time, save $200, plus get free shipping on all their Ready Hour three-month emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour Foods. My Patriot Supply also has solar power generators, water filtration units, biomass stoves, heirloom seeds, and critical survival gear. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, Reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Away we go, episode 25 of the Al Galdi podcast. It is Thursday, March 25th, 2021. It is a triumphant day for the Danny. If you happen to run into Dan Snyder on this Thursday, maybe you run into him getting coffee. Maybe you run into him at the gym. Maybe you run into him at the grocery store. Maybe you run into him while getting the vaccine. Wherever, wherever. If you happen to run into the Danny, on this Thursday, and you notice, say, a little pep in his step, and a little extra oomph in his giddy-up, you're not going to be surprised. What a development on Wednesday for the Danny. The ownership turmoil for the Washington football team, arguably the biggest off-the-field controversy 
for the team. And that's saying something, right? Because you also have a name change. You also have a sexual harassment scandal. But the ownership turmoil appears to be over. And Danny ain't going nowhere. First off, happy Thanksgiving, everybody. Yes, Danny. It is a happy Thanksgiving, at least for you. Welcome aboard to this Thursday installment of the Al Galdi Podcast. Good to have you with us. Still top 40 in the country, are we, on Apple Podcasts in the U.S. football category. I was told that the momentum wouldn't last, that there's an initial pop when you start a pod, and then the rankings fade away. Well, here we are more than a month into this thing. Number 35 in the country as of this morning, still ahead of Peter King's podcast. That's good enough for me. You know, it's like Costanza on Seinfeld when all he cared about was making more money than Ted Danson. I can't live knowing that Ted Danson makes that much more than me. Yes, all I want is to be ahead of Peter King, and I can continue to say that. So thank you for the continued support. Anyway, got a ton for you on this show on the development with the Danny on Wednesday. A massive item, of course, regarding the future of the Washington football team. I'm also going to be getting into the latest Washington football team free agency news, including Cam Sims officially being re-signed. Is Washington done at receiver? Ryan Kerrigan perhaps finally has a suitor in his free agency. And Fabian Moreau is gone. Another defection for Washington secondary. Also, Thursday is NBA trade deadline day. What's going to happen with our Wizards? The damn Washington Wizards. Yes, those Wizards. Special guest on the show, Wizards insider Chase Hughes of NBC Sports Washington. Will the Wiz, should the Wiz, blow the whole thing up later today? Steven Strasburg, he was back pitching for the Nationals in an exhibition game on Wednesday evening. And shockingly, it turns out that his left calf strain wasn't exactly just a left calf strain. We'll get into that. Also, Josh Bell and Ryan Zimmerman on fire. Could the Nats actually end up having one of the more productive first base situations in the majors this coming season? I'll talk some Orioles as well. So as you may have noticed in your Apple Podcast library, there is a new logo for the Al Galdi Podcast. The folks at Blue Wire have put together something that I think looks good. Uh, You tell me what you think about it. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi Podcast at yahoo.com. But I told him, I said, look, we got to keep the colors for the logo, just like the Washington football team has to keep its colors. So we go burgundy and gold with the logo for this podcast. But I think a good looking logo with, 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 a, with an arm grabbing a mic, the mic says WFT. You know, I think it looks sharp, but you tell me, you know, I'm, I'm definitely open to uh, ways we could perhaps make it even better. All right. I'm, I'm on board with that. So you tell me what you think. But so far, I'd say so good with the feedback. Email from Dave Yanovitz. Love the new Al Galdi podcast logo picture in the Apple Podcast Library. Looks great. The arm raised triumphantly. Yes, I do like the arm. Uh, Email from Thomas Murphy. Gotta say it. Love the podcast logo. At least we have a team name and logo uh, all in on Galdi Podcast Nation. Thank you, Thomas. Uh, Tweet from John Taman. He writes, like the new pod graphic, I'm listening every morning on Spotify during my exercise bike ride. There you go. Pumping it out. Peloton style. Or maybe not. But whatever the case may be, John An early morning warrior getting his workout in. We like that. We approve of that uh, on the show. Well, speaking of names and logos and branding, a lot of feedback to our conversation on Wednesday's podcast about Jason Wright, again, floating the idea of Washington football team as the permanent name. You know where I stand on that. I don't mind the name at all as a temporary placeholder. I have no interest in that being 
the permanent name. Got some good emails on the topic. Uh, Brian Perry wrote me. He says, the notion of naming the team Washington FC. Yes, I brought that up too. This this thing that's been out there. Of, we'll just call it Washington FC or FC Washington. Uh, continues, Brian. It would be arrogant for Snyder and Wright to go with that name. First, it would be really screwing DC United. Or at the very least, there would be the need to constantly explain, no, WFT is not a second soccer team in D.C. But think about the international aspirations of the NFL. Pick a name FC to anyone outside the U.S. That means a soccer team. Imagine the jokes in London if WFC ever played a game at Wembley. I love American football and do not think any NFL team should ever use FC. I agree with you, Brian. I'm 100% on board with you. Uh, Our friend Sabah who, by the way, is a doctor. Dr. Sabah emailed me. She says, I think we should be called Washington, Washington. This way, the trollers can't list us as the football team on the schedule, which is just silly. And most importantly, our fight song and band can remain. Here is the way the song would go. And she writes, sing this out. Well, I don't know if I'm going to sing this out for you, Sabah, but I'll read the lyrics anyway. Hail to Washington. Hail victory. March on the warpath. Fight for old DC. You know, it's funny (laughs) with this name stuff, as all of the Danny stuff was coming out on Wednesday, you may have noticed this if you were on Twitter, the Washington football team was conducting this virtual session about the name change, about the rebrand. The session was called Inside the Rebrand, and Jason Wright was taking part in it. And so as all this Danny stuff is breaking on Wednesday, the Washington football team's official Twitter account is putting out quotes from this inside the rebrand session that's going on. So it it, it was really something else, right? Because like, while one of the biggest news items possible is happening, the Washington football team is kind of like closing its eyes and covering its ears and going, la, 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 we're doing inside the rebrand. And here's what's going on with our name change. La, 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 la. While like circling around the team is this fire of news that Dan Snyder is becoming even more empowered as majority owner. The Washington football team, like I said, was tweeting out quotes from this session. And, you know, the quotes were kind of the typical, you know, corporate speak mumbo jumbo that we're becoming used to. And I don't say that like as an insult to Jason Wright. I actually like Jason Wright. I think he's a smart guy. I think he's got a lot going for him. But, you know, it was kind of funny reading some of the stuff that was out there. The brand should represent the type of football team that our fans, coaches, and alumni want us to be the type of culture and ethos that exists between the lines should be reflective of the name brand and identity. There are a ton of things that unite people. It's not just about a name and logo. It's also about the traditions that develop, the way that they will engage in chants, slogans, and sayings, all the different aspects of who we are as fans. On any other day, that stuff would have been perfectly fine because you're like, yeah, the name change is a big deal. And as I've said, I do think it's really good that the team is reaching out to the fan base, incorporating the thoughts of the fan base. I mean, ultimately, I'm not sure how much of a say we truly have, but it's nice that at least Washington is trying to have some fun with this and engage the fan base with this. I think those are all very good things. But again, this is all being put out there as the firestorm of news is happening with this Dan Snyder item. And so some of the feedback to the, the, the tweets from the Washington football team really were funny, okay? And I mean, I mean Twitter is like this, right? Like, you, you could tweet out the most benign, innocent thing. You, you could tweet out, I believe we should give all orphans milk, okay? I mean, you could, you could put out something that, like, nobody could ever disagree with, and yet still, people on Twitter will find a way to disagree with it. So I get that. But some of the responses to these tweets that were put out there by the team as this inside the rebrand session was going on, as all the Dan Snyder news was breaking, Frank, 
Change name back to Redskins now. Alex, do your job. All fans want a new logo and a new nickname, period. Rick, we want a freaking name and logo. Anything less is idiotic. Corrado, what a coincidence. This inside the rebrand gets thrown together quickly and offers no new updates, but happens the same time the Snyder news comes out. People were harpooning the Washington football team as the inside the rebrand thing was going on. All right. It was a big deal on Wednesday. We now try to make sense of it. So you may remember the weekend of July 4th last year. It was a weekend unlike any other in the history of the Washington football team. It was the weekend on which the Washington football team name controversy really, truly got taken to an entirely unprecedented level. Well, the final bomb to drop in Washington's name controversy on that weekend of July 4th, 2020 came out on Sunday, July 5th, when we had multiple reports that Dan Snyder's minority owners wanted out. Mike Florio of Pro Football Talk that afternoon reported that two of Washington's three minority owners, Fred Smith and Dwight Shar, had been actively trying to sell their pieces of the team. Florio also said that per a source with knowledge of the situation, Smith had been trying to get Dan to change the name for years. And Fred Smith Of course, the CEO, founder of FedEx, it was FedEx that on Thursday evening, July 2nd, issued the following short but massive statement, quote, we have communicated to the team in Washington our request that they change the team name, end quote. What ignited the events of the weekend of July 4th last year was FedEx putting out that statement was one of Dan's minority partners turning heel I'm Dan. Again, Fred Smith, chairman, president, and CEO of FedEx, founded FedEx in 1971. That guy turned on Danny. That's what really, truly got the whole name change going. Then on Sunday evening, July 5th, the Washington Post reported that all three of Washington's minority owners, Smith, Shar, and Robert Ruffman, were trying to sell their stakes in the team. The Post report said that per one person familiar with the deliberations, The three minority owners had hired an investment banking firm to conduct the search for potential buyers, in large part because the minority owners were, quote, not happy being a partner, end quote, of Dan Snyder. That is what began this saga of what I have referred to as the ownership turmoil. Over the last year, you have had three different major off-the-field situations with the Washington football team. The name change the sexual harassment scandal, and the ownership turmoil. And from purely a football operations standpoint, the ownership turmoil is what has mattered the most. Now, from a life standpoint, obviously the sexual harassment scandal is the biggest deal. From perhaps a fan standpoint and your emotional attachment to the team, perhaps the name change is the biggest deal. But from a football operations standpoint, you could argue nothing matters more than who owns the team. Was the ownership structure for the team going to fundamentally change? Was what so many people have wanted for so long, Danny out as the majority owner, actually going to be happening? Well, that's not happening. And in fact, the exact opposite is happening. Because on Wednesday, we had multiple reports that Dan Snyder is buying out 
the three disgruntled minority investors, Dwight Shaw, Robert Rothman, and Fred Smith. Now, this is not official, official just yet. Uh, the other NFL owners need to vote on this, and this is going to be happening at the NFL's annual meeting next week. The way it works with NFL ownership transactions is you need three quarters of the NFL owners to give you a yes. So you're going to need, in essence, 24 of the 32 owners to vote in favor of the transaction. Now, does Dan himself actually vote on this? I'm, I'm not positive about that, but if he does, you need 24 out of the 32 or 23 out of the remaining 31 to vote in favor of this. But knowing what we know about the machinations of the good old boys club that is NFL ownership, you would think we wouldn't have made it this far without an understanding that the ownership approval is going to be coming. So there's so much to get into with what is out there about what exactly is happening here. Let's start with this, though. The NFL is making a special exemption for Dan Snyder to buy out the minority owners. One of the big items that came out on Wednesday is that the NFL's finance committee has approved an application for Dan for a $450 million debt waiver. The NFL obviously doesn't like its teams, its ownership groups being massively in debt. The NFL is making a special exemption here for the Donny to get a $450 million debt waiver. Now, NFL owners have become more flexible when it comes to the debt waiver issue. It was in May of 2020, right in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic, that NFL owners voted to raise the debt limit for each team from $350 million to $500 million. But understand, Danny needed this debt exemption. Dan Snyder is filthy rich by, you know, you and I terms. But he's actually not among the richest of the richy riches, and he's actually not even close to that. If you go by Forbes.com's real-time billionaires list, this is actually a pretty cool thing that Forbes.com has, a real-time tracking of the richy riches, a real-time billionaires list. Dan, through Tuesday, had an estimated net worth of $2.6 billion. For comparison's sake, Fred Smith, one of the minority owners, was at $6 billion. Fred Smith, per Forbes.com, net worth more than twice that of the Danny. You know, just to give you a sense of like where Dan is at in terms of the Richie Riches. You know, Jeff Bezos, of course, is number one, $181.2 billion. To put into perspective how freaking rich that guy is. But Danny, $2.6 billion. Fred Smith at $6 billion. And, you know, Dan is not someone who is like necessarily super liquid. You know, I mean, he's, he's got plenty of cash on hand, I'm sure. But does he have the kind of cash on hand to buy out the three minority investors? No. So he needed this debt waiver and he's getting this debt waiver. So let's think about this for a moment. While we are still awaiting the findings of the Beth Wilkinson investigation into the sexual harassment scandal, while we are still awaiting what's going to happen to Danny because of the findings, in the sexual harassment investigation by Beth Wilkinson. Not only is he not being removed as majority owner, he is being empowered in being allowed to become more of a majority owner. I mean, think about that for a moment. You know, think about where we were just a few weeks ago, right? The sports junkies on March 5th put out that report saying they've received information from Beth Wilkinson's report on her findings in the investigation. And the top two recommendations per the junkies were one, force the owner to divest ownership of his team, and two, suspend the owner for a significant period to allow time to repair the team's infrastructure and culture. So basically, the findings per the junkies were either get this guy out of here as the majority owner, or at the very least, suspend this guy for a significant period of time. 
This all came out on March 5th, and it was quickly shot down by an NFL spokesperson and the radio station, 106.7 The Fan, definitely walked back a lot of the stuff in a statement that was put out on Monday, although the station in a statement did say, quote, we do believe in the authenticity of the documents we received and that they are from the Wilkinson investigation, but we are unable to confirm that the report was a final draft or that it had been delivered to the league office. End quote. So we're still trying to figure out if what the junkies had was legit or was just a bunch of fake news. But think about where we were not that long ago, earlier this month, just a few weeks ago. Danny on the doorstep of being removed, at the very least on the doorstep of being suspended. And just a few weeks later, he's being further empowered by being allowed to become more of a majority owner. And that word allowed is so key. The NFL is helping Danny. The NFL is working with Danny to make him more of a majority owner. It's not just that he's not being removed. It's not even, not just he may well not even be suspended. It may well just end up being he has to pay a a token fine and that's all. But he's being helped by the NFL to become even more powerful when it comes to the Washington football team structure. That is something else, isn't it? The exact opposite of what we thought might happen is happening here. You know what this reminds me of? This reminds me of at the end of the 2018 season where things fall apart for Washington and everyone on the planet wants Bruce Allen out of here. And that's when the whole hashtag fire Bruce Allen thing happened. And not only was Bruce not fired after the 2018 season, he was further empowered because he got put in charge of business operations in addition to football operations. The exact opposite of what we wanted, of what people were screaming for, is what ended up taking place. And that's precisely what is happening here with Danny. Not only is he not out or potentially not even being suspended, he is being given even more power. I mean, it's incredible when you think about that. Now, I think there's something else to be wondering about here, and that is, is Danny going to be getting himself some new minority partners? And that's not really clear right now. You know, because on the one hand, you would say, well, he needs this debt exemption to make the purchase. So clearly, he's going to need some new minority investors to help out moving forward in terms of the ownership structure. It may be, but maybe not, because remember what just came out. The NFL on March 18th announced the signing of new long-term television contracts, right? We've been talking about this on the podcast, how, yes, the salary cap going down for this next season, but it is going to fly to the moon in the coming years because all four of the major national television deals are coming up. New deals are being negotiated, and everyone expected all of these new deals to be so much more lucrative than the existing deals, right? Talking about the working contracts with Fox, CBS, NBC, and ESPN, ABC. Well, it turns out the new deals are all done, okay? And these deals with those four aforementioned networks and also Amazon are running for 11 seasons, 2023 through 2033, though the deals reportedly do include outs after the 2029 season. But here's what you need to know. The total package reportedly is an 11-year, $113 billion package. That works out to $10.27 billion per year. The NFL, under its current national television deals, making about $5 billion per year. The NFL, with its new national television deals, ended up doing exactly what the league wanted to do, and that is more than double the existing money. That's incredible. In today's television landscape, with so much cord cutting going on, 
with so few people now watching television live, you know, at the very least watching television via DVR, you know, or maybe not even watching television at all, right? Just streaming things. You were able to not only maintain your TV money, not only increase your TV money, but more than double your TV money. That highlights the power, popularity of the NFL, the force that is live sports in this day and age of cord cutting and watching television on demand more than anything else. You're going from $5 billion to $10.27 billion. And none of this, by the way, includes the DirecTV Sunday ticket package for which DirecTV is paying the NFL $1.5 billion per year in a contract that's set to expire after the 2022 season. But the point is this, league revenues are indeed going to be flying to the moon. And Dan Snyder, in becoming even more of a majority owner through this process that broke yesterday, is going to be raking in even more money. So does he necessarily need new minority partners to make this sale go down? That's not clear right now. It's going to be an interesting thing to follow. So like the thing about, well, maybe Jeff Bezos comes on board as a new minority investor. Danny may now not need Uncle Jeff. We'll see. We'll see. But that's something to be thinking about. As for the price, what is Danny paying to Shar, Rothman, and Smith for their minority shares? Well, for a report from the New York Times on Wednesday, Danny's going to be paying $875 million. Let's do the math on this, all right? If you look at the breakdown of Washington's current ownership structure, Shar, Rothman, and Smith, their minority shares add up to 40.5% of the ownership of the team. It's interesting if you look at the breakdown of the Washington football team. I don't know how many people are aware of this. It's not just Dan Snyder and Robert Rothman, Dwight Shaw, and Fred Smith. The ownership group also does include Dan's sister, Michelle. Michelle Snyder owns about a 12.6% stake in the team. And the ownership group also includes Dan's mom, Arlette Snyder. She owns about a 6.5% stake in the team. The minority owner shares, again, added up to 40.5%. So you say, okay, New York Times says Danny's having to pay $875 million for the three minority partners' shares. $875 million for a 40.5% stake in the team works out to the franchise being worth $2.16 billion. That's low. That's very low. Forbes last September valued the Washington football team as being worth $3.5 billion. Number eight in the NFL, by the way. Uh, The Dallas Cowboys are number one every year. 14 consecutive years, uh, the Cowboys have been ranked number one on that Forbes list. Uh, $5.7 billion was the Forbes valuation for the Cowboys this past September. But Washington has been a consistent top 10 performer in these Forbes rankings. Number eight this past September, $3.5 billion. So wait a second here. Why is Danny able to pay a mere $875 million for the 40.5% stake when the team performs anyway is said to be valued at $3.5 billion? Well, it's very simple. The minority shares for Shaw, Rothman, and Smith on their own don't really mean as much as you might think. Those shares don't have proportionate worth to the team as a whole because the minority shares offer no definite path to majority ownership. This has been one of the tricky things in Shaw, Rothman, and Smith trying to sell those shares on their own. Others have looked at this and said, yeah, I want to be an NFL owner, but what good is it being an owner of this team 
when there's no path to majority ownership. You know, it's not like Dan Snyder is in his 80s or 90s and you say, well, you know, he's not going to be around that much longer. And once he passes, maybe then I can swoop in and become the majority owner. Like, no, Dan Snyder's in his 50s. So barring some major health issue or a scandal, he's not going anywhere, not going anywhere for a while. And of course, even if he were to go somewhere, you still have to think about, well, he's got his family, right? His mom is part of the ownership group. His sister's part of the ownership group. Uh, Danny, of course, has a wife has kids. So, you know, this idea of like, if you buy into Washington, that's a path to majority ownership. Not necessarily. A lot of people certainly aren't viewing it that way. And so these minority shares for Shaw, Rothman, and Smith have never been viewed as on their own being worth in true proportion to what the value of the franchise is. There's no way if you put the Washington football team on the open market right now, it would go for $2.16 billion. It would go for at least that Forbes price of three and a half billion dollars. And with this new television money that's going to be coming in, you could argue Washington on the open market right now would go for, I don't know, four billion, five billion. I've seen some people say like eight billion dollars. Any NFL franchise at this point would be worth on the open market. The Washington Post this past November 20th had a story headline, Washington football team minority owners have a deal to sell, but Daniel Snyder is blocking it. So the article said that a group of investors from California had offered $900 million for the minority owner's 40.5% stake in the team, but that the Danny was standing in the way as part of this feud with especially one of the minority owners, Dwight Shaw. Remember, one of the many things that has emerged in this ownership turmoil has been the alleged smear campaign funded in part by Shaw against Danny. And remember, one of the other things that's emerged in those allegations is that Danny says that Bruce Allen has been a part of this smear campaign against the Danny. But anyway, what Danny did, and this is so gangsta, I mean, you see how these owners can be. Dan Snyder prevented the minority owners from selling their three shares for $900 million to the California investors by selectively exercising his right of first refusal to buy back minority shares of the team before they're sold to other parties. Danny, per this Post article last November, had offered to buy only, only, the 25% share held by Fred Smith and Robert Rothman, but not the 15% share owned by Shar. You talk about sticking it to the minority guys. Danny said, well, I have a right of first refusal. I'll buy out uh, Fred and Robert, but I ain't buying out you, Dwight. You tried to smear me, pal. So I'm going to stick it to you here. So the minority owners had a deal to sell their shares for $900 million. Danny now is paying $875 million. So a discounted price, because again, $900 million still was not in proportion to a $3.5 billion valuation for the franchise. A discounted price is now even more discounted, thanks to Danny doing as he did per this Post article last November. First off, happy Thanksgiving, everybody. Yes, it is a very happy Thanksgiving today, at least if you're Dan Snyder. Now, a few other things for this Post article last November. So also per the article was this, the NFL and the owners of the other teams were not pleased that Shar, Smith, and Rothman had taken the dispute to court. Uh, the three minority owners, per both the Post and the New York Times, sued Dan Snyder in U.S. District Court in Maryland on November 13th of last year. Said a person with knowledge of the league's inner workings to the Post, quote, that's not how it's done, end Quote. And so this brings me to the following. Why is the NFL doing this? Why is the NFL on board with helping out a largely despised, widely regarded 
bad owner in Dan Snyder to become even more of an owner, to empower him more, to make his majority more of a majority with this debt exemption? Why is the NFL essentially choosing Danny over these minority investors? And I think it comes down to a couple of things. Number one, the NFL wants all of this ugliness to go away. This has been embarrassing, this ownership turmoil, this back and forth in court between Danny and the minority owners, this alleged smear campaign that Danny has said Dwight Shar helped to fund and now again uh, says Bruce Allen was a part of. This is not a good look, you know? And remember what that smear campaign included. The smear campaign, if you recall, had to do with the lead up to that first Washington Post article last July in the sexual harassment scandal. And while the actual article ended up being bad enough, it was the buildup to the article that I think will stick with people forever. All of the stuff that was out there on the internet that ended up, I guess, not being true. I mean, it was never reported uh, formally by any credible outlet. But remember the hype for this article and all of the rumblings of what's going to be in this thing that the Washington Post apparently is working on. Like Among the rumors that got out there, Dan Snyder abusing drugs and alcohol, Dan Snyder bribing some NFL officials, some of whom had made $2 million off Dan, Jay Gruden having done drugs and participated in sex parties, the Washington football team having pimped out cheerleaders to sweet holders, the late convicted sex trafficker Jeffrey Epstein having somehow been involved in all of this. All of these things were out there on the internet, on social media, in the bloodstream, in terms of D.C. area conversation in the days slash weeks leading up to that publication of that initial Washington Post article regarding the sexual harassment scandal. I'll never forget it. I'm sure many of you will never forget that. And even though all of this stuff, it feels uh, wasn't true, or at the very least has never been like formally reported, okay, it may just all be entirely fake news, it got out there. And we all know how things work these days. Something doesn't have to be true for it to become a thing. This stuff got out there. It was embarrassing. It was embarrassing to Dan Snyder. It was embarrassing to the rest of the NFL. The rest of the NFL wants this all to go away, okay? They're tired of dealing with this. This whole thing has been ugly. It's been off-putting. It's not doing anyone ever any favors. And especially as the NFL has been trying to negotiate these new national television contracts, the NFL is kind of like, hey, get your act together, Washington, okay? Let's, let, let, let's end this already, and let's move forward and start raking in even more billions of dollars per year. Because remember, it's not just national TV money that's going to the moon. It's also this gambling revenue that the NFL is going to be swimming in in the coming years. So the NFL, I just think, very much wants all of this to go away looks at Dan Snyder and says, look, we don't like this guy as an owner, but we can't just get rid of him. You know, it, it may well be that this Beth Wilkinson investigation is, is going to end up having a lot of like he said, she said stuff. And, and it's not going to be enough for the NFL to just like force Dan out as majority owner. So if that's the case, the NFL is like, all right, we, we can't just get rid of him. So let's make the best of this bad situation. Get rid of the minority owners and the ownership turmoil, end all of the ugliness in the courts, in the media, and let's just kind of cross our fingers and hope that Danny just stays out of the way, lets Ron Rivera do his thing, and the Washington football team can get back to being good. Because remember, it is in the NFL's interest for the Washington football team to get back to being good. Washington, D.C. is a top 10 television market. It's not good for NFL business that a team in a top 10 television market has been this bad for this long. You can always tweet me at Al Galdi. I got this tweet from Russell Fugit a fellow graduate of Georgetown Prep, the son 
of the former Washington tight end and former Dallas Cowboys tight end, Gene Fugit. Uh, Russell's a great dude. He tweeted me. He said, so Goldie, could enough league owners vote against Snyder's debt waiver? And if so, then what? Or does unifying all ownership interests with Snyder serve the league's interest should the Wilkinson report force a sale, easier sale to Bezos? That's actually an interesting idea. I suppose it's possible. I suppose it's possible. But I tend to think what came out on Wednesday is more the NFL recognizing Danny ain't going nowhere. This Beth Wilkinson investigation is, yes, finding the things that the Washington Post found, but it still ends up being a lot of he said, she said. It still ends up being a lot of things specific to Danny that allegedly happened years ago. Because remember, the stuff that's specific to Dan is not from, say, a year or two ago. It's more so from like 10, 15 years ago. Not that that makes it any better, but it does become harder to prove stuff that happened many years back. I mean, do do I think a lot of the stuff that's been alleged with all the sexual harassment scandal stuff is true? Yes, I do. Yes, I do. But there's a difference between thinking something is true and knowing with certainty that it is true. And especially, you know, if you're Danny and you're making some concessions here, right, firing some of the people who allegedly engaged in this behavior. I mean, 100% Danny is to blame for so much of this stuff, for presiding over this environment. There's no doubt about that. But, you know, if Danny plays some ball and makes some concessions and says, well, I'll be a good boy. And, you know, I've tried to be more diverse, right? Remember all the bots who are tweeting out all the things. And, you know, we have a black president and we have a black general manager and we hired the first full-time uh, black female assistant coach and we hired the first full-time uh, female voice for an NFL team in terms of the radio broadcast, right? And Julie Donaldson, see, look at me. I'm Captain Progressive. I'm Captain Woke. You know, I'm making, I'm, I'm being a good boy here. I'm doing a good job. If Danny's doing those things, maybe the NFL's like, okay, Danny, we'll let you stay on board. And of course, it's not just now that Danny's staying on board. He is now even further empowered. And I just, I just cannot get over that. Dan Snyder ends up not only not being removed as majority owner, and it may well be that he ends up not even being suspended because of this Wilkinson stuff. We'll see. We'll see. But he ends up becoming even more powerful. If you remember the all-time great show, Breaking Bad, and the moments after Walter White's plan to blow up Gus Fring has succeeded. You know, it's funny. This is a second consecutive installment of the Al Goldie podcast in which we are referencing Gus Fring being blown up. But do you remember what Walter White said in that cell phone conversation with his wife? I won. Yes, exactly. He's standing at the top of that parking garage. He is battered. He is bruised. He is fatigued. He is stressed out beyond belief. But his plan succeeded. And his enemy, the guy who was trying to kill him, is gone. I won. He won. Walter White won. And that's Dan Snyder. Danny has won. Despite the sexual harassment investigation, despite the ownership turmoil, despite so many wanting Dan out, it's not only that he's not out, it's that he's about to become more powerful than he's ever been in terms of his ownership. I won. Yeah, he won. The exact opposite of what some expected and what so many more wanted has happened. I won. All right, well, with that cheerful happy news, let's move on to actual football talk with the Washington football team, the latest in free agency for Washington. So the team on Wednesday officially announced that Cam Sims has signed 
his tender. Cam Sims had been a restricted free agent. Washington tendered Cam Sims a contract as a restricted free agent. Rather tellingly, only gave Cam Sims a right of first refusal tender, i.e. a low-round tender. So this is just for $2.133 million. Remember the way it works with restricted free agency. Restricted free agents to be can be tendered at one of multiple levels. The higher the level, the more the money for the player in the tender but also the more the compensation for the team should it not match an offer sheet for that player, right? If you're a restricted free agent, you can sign an offer sheet with another team and then your initial team has the right to either match that offer sheet or let you go and then get back compensation for you. Washington only tendered Cam Sims again at a low round right of first refusal level. So Washington was kind of like, yeah, we like you, but we don't love you. We don't think you're going to really do better than this. And sure enough, he didn't. Uh, 2.133 million dollars. Washington re-signs Cam Sims. I think that's a great deal for Washington. And look, if you're Cam Sims, I mean, Cam Sims, remember, came into the NFL as an undrafted free agent out of Alabama in the 2018 offseason. Suffered a high ankle sprain in that win at the Arizona Cardinals in week one of that season. Spent the rest of the season on Washington's injured reserve. And then in 2019, Cam got released in the cut down to 53, had multiple practice squad stints. And then in 2020, Cam got waived in the cut down to 53, then got signed to the practice squad before being elevated uh, to the active roster. And then he actually ended up playing in all 16 games uh, in 2020, Cam Sims did. But the point is, this is not someone who came in the NFL as like a first-round pick, and it's someone who every year has had to fight, scratch, and claw for his spot on the Washington football team. So $2.133 million, a guy like Cam Sims is not going to poo-poo, and he should not poo-poo it. I like Cam Sims. I think a lot of you like Cam Sims. I think he's a very intriguing player. Going into just his age 25 season, he's a big guy, right, listed as being 6'5", and he had some big games for Washington in 2020. That 23-20 loss to the New York Giants at FedEx Field in Week 9, three catches, 110 yards on four targets. A 23-17 win at the Pittsburgh Steelers on that Monday evening in Week 13, five catches, 92 yards on nine targets. The 31-23 loss to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers at FedEx Field in the wild card game. Seven receptions, 104 yards on 13 targets. Had a great thing going in that game, Cam did, with Taylor Heineke. Yes, Cam has been guilty of too many drops. That's one of the reasons he did not make Washington's initial 53-man roster each of the last two years. But the guy has talent. The guy has playmaking ability. And he's certainly worth bringing back. Now, is he a true number two? Not yet. You know, that's why he signed Curtis Samuel. But in a good receiving court, can Cam Sims be a quality number three? Yeah, I think he can be. You know, he's got work to do. He's far from a finished product. But the guy's got size. The guy's got, you know, jump up and get it ability. And the guy's got some wiggle to him. Like he's got an ability to generate yardage after the catch. So in thinking about Washington's receiving court, I do wonder now if Washington is essentially done, certainly in free agency. Like come the draft, to me, you go best player available. And if receiver happens to be that wherever you're picking in whichever round, then go ahead and take a receiver, like no doubt. But in terms of like, okay, is Washington's receiving core still like some dire need? I don't really look at it that way. Terry McLaurin, Curtis Samuel, Cam Sims, that's a pretty good one through three. Is it elite? No, but it's definitely got a lot of potential. You know, you've got youth, you've got speed, certainly with McLaurin and Samuel, you've got size in Sims, and you've got playmaking ability with all three guys. You know, and then you say, all right, what do you have beyond those people? Well, Steven Sims had a bad second season off a promising rookie campaign in 2019. So we'll see what Steven Sims ends up being. But you're not going to need Steven Sims anymore to be your primary slot guy, right? That's going to be Curtis Samuel. So is Steven Sims a good starting receiver or a good top three receiver for a team right now? Probably not. 
But is he a good depth guy? Yeah. I mean, like we saw what Steven Sims did December of his rookie season, December of 2019. Steven Sims did a good job. And even this past season, as bad as it was for Steven Sims in terms of injury and some drops, he still made some plays, right? Steven Sims had that great touchdown catch in that playoff loss to the Buccaneers. So you do have Steven Sims. You do have Antonio Gandy-Golden. And yes, it was largely a lost rookie season for Antonio Gandy-Golden. Washington took him in the fourth round of the 2020 draft uh, as a rookie, played in just six games, totaled just one catch on three targets. Remember, he missed a bunch of time due to a hamstring injury that was suffered in that 2019 loss at the New York Giants in week six. But AGG is a bigger guy, uh, listed as being 6'4". AGG was very productive at Liberty. And the selection of AGG was widely praised. If you remember some of what was said when Washington took Antonio Gandy-Golden in the fourth round of that 2020 draft, Lewis Riddick of ESPN said on the day three telecast of the draft uh, that this was a spectacular pick by Washington. Daniel Jeremiah, the NFL draft analyst for NFL Network, NFL.com, labeled Washington's selection of Antonio Gandy-Golden as the best value pick in the fourth round of the 2020 draft. Jeremiah had AGG as the number 79 overall player in the draft, but he went with pick number 142. So we'll see. Like all of this is talk and hype and what he could be vis-a-vis what he has been so far. But I think there is something there with Antonio Gandy-Golden. We didn't see it last season, but that doesn't mean that we can't see it in 2021. And then there is a wild card in all of this, and that is Kelvin Harmon. Kelvin Harmon spent the entire 2020 season on Washington's reserve slash non-football injury list, uh, got put on that due to having suffered a torn right ACL and torn right LCL while working out in the offseason. Harmon, a 2019 six-round pick out of NC State, like Steven Sims, came on as that 2019 season went on. Uh, Last seven games of 2019, Harmon, 22 catches for 290 yards on 35 targets. He he initially in the season really wasn't playing all that much, didn't do much. And then as the season went on, played more and consequently did more. But the other thing too about Kelvin Harmon is he was a very good blocker as a rookie in 2019. Like Kelvin Harmon was Washington's best blocking receiver in 2019. So maybe he doesn't put up jaw-dropping stats, but he can certainly help you. He's a bigger bodied guy. He's not going to overwhelm you with his speed, but he is someone who can certainly help you in that receiving core. So if you told me right now, Washington's receiving core going into 2021, McLaurin, Samuel, the two Simses, AGG, and Harmon. I mean, I don't think that sucks. Like, yes, there's a lot to be proven, especially with Steven Sims, Gandy Golden, and Harmon, but you got some things to work with here. So I think Washington is probably largely done in free agency at receiver. Maybe you go receiver in the draft. I'm not against that, right? We've seen a lot of the mocks have Kadarius Toney, the uber offensive weapon out of Florida, going to Washington with that number 19 overall pick. I'm not against that, okay? I'd be open to that. Uh, We even had the recent mock from Bucky Brooks of NFL.com having Devontae Smith, the Alabama receiver, the Heisman Trophy winner, going to Washington at number 19. I certainly would not be angry about that. But I I look at receiver now, and I don't know about you, but I I don't see this as, oh my God, like what are they going to do? I look at receiver now, I'm like, you know what? They got pieces to work with here. Nothing matters more with the receiving core in 2021 than the quarterback play being better. You get better quarterback play. And it would be hard for the quarterback play for Washington in 2021 to be worse than the quarterback play that was on display in 2020. But you get better quarterback play in 2021. We're going to think a lot more of this receiving core you get better quarterback play. I think we're going to look at this receiving core and say, you know what? These guys are good. These guys can get the job done.
Turning our attention to Washington's defense, we finally got some Ryan Kerrigan news on Wednesday. Ian Rappaport, NFL insider for NFL Network, NFL.com, he tweeted on Wednesday that Kerrigan was to take a free agent visit with the Cincinnati Bengals on Wednesday. Also did say that Washington has, quote, interest in having Kerrigan return, end quote. Yeah, man, uh, Ryan Kerrigan's just been kind of lingering out there. And any notion of he was going to be gobbled up in the initial stage of free agency, uh, no, we did not even come close to that. Like, you've heard next to nothing about Ryan Kerrigan's free agency so far. It doesn't mean there hasn't been interest, but we just certainly haven't heard a lot about interest in Ryan Kerrigan. So uh, when he signs with a team, it's going to come, you know, in the second wave or maybe even third wave of free agency. We'll see. Bengals are the first team I've heard of as having interest in Kerrigan. So he's going into his age 33 season. We really have not talked much about Kerrigan so far in free agency, basically because I I know I've considered it a given that he's going to be gone. Like I just have had zero expectation that Washington will be resigning him. We know he wants to play more and he barely played this past season. Kerrigan over the 16 games for Washington in the 2020 regular season uh, did play in all 16 games, but made just one start, played on just 37.99% of Washington's defensive snaps. Troy Apke played on more defensive snaps for Washington last regular season than Kerrigan did. You know, uh, Kerrigan just was surpassed. Look, Washington had Chase Young and Montez Sweat as a primary edge rushers, had the three studs on the interior and Jonathan Allen, Deron Payne, and Matt Ioannidis. And, you know, even with Ioannidis getting injured, that really ended up meeting more of Tim Settle as much as it meant, you know, more of Ryan Kerrigan. And, you know, Kerrigan's more of an edge guy anyway, although to me, you could have deployed him a little bit in the interior. But Washington uh, didn't seem to be that interested in playing Kerrigan that much. I mean, he played some. It's not like he was a non-factor, but he just wasn't really used all that much. Now, he did end up being relatively productive. He, he finished with five and a half sacks. He finished per sport radar with 13 pressures. So it's not like he did nothing. He did become Washington's all-time leader in regular season sacks, right? Ryan Kerrigan is the all-time sack king for the Washington football team. 95 and a half career regular season sacks. Although there definitely is a caveat you got to attach to that. So the guy he surpassed, of course, is Dexter Manley. Dexter played for Washington from 1981 through 89. The sack did not become an official NFL stat until 1982. So Dexter's rookie season, 1981, has him as having had uh, no sacks because sacks were not tracked officially anyway in 1981. So Dexter's career sack total could be a lot higher than what it is. As it is, it's 91 sacks for Dexter, 95 and a half for Ryan Kerrigan. But like I said, you got to factor in sacks having not been an official stat for Dexter in his 81 rookie season. You also have to say this, on a per-game basis, Dexter has blown away Ryan Kerrigan. Ryan Kerrigan, in his career with Washington, an average of 0.612 sacks per game. Dexter, over his last eight seasons with Washington, I'm not going to count 1981, an average of 0.835 sacks per game. So Kerrigan, 0.612 sacks per game. Dexter, 0.835 sacks per game. Kerrigan may be the all-time sack king for Washington, but Dexter is the best pass rusher in Washington football team history. And I think most people are on board with that. Now, it is worth noting Kerrigan did stay healthy in 2020 because you did wonder about where his body was at off what happened in 2019. Remember, Ryan Kerrigan in 2019 saw his streaks come to an end. Kerrigan suffered a concussion in that win over the Detroit Lions at FedEx Field in week 12 of the 2019 season. Kerrigan ended up missing a game because of that. 
That one-game absence snapped his streaks of 139 consecutive regular season games and starts to begin his career. Kerrigan had never missed a game up until that point, had never not started in a game up until that point. And then, of course, what happened? He incredibly got hurt in his first game back. A guy who had been a pillar of durability gets injured, misses a game, and in his first game back gets injured again. Suffered a calf injury on the opening drive uh, of the second half in that loss at the Green Bay Packers in Week 14. Ended up being put on injured reserve on December 13th in 2019. So you just weren't sure, like, was the body starting to fall apart for Ryan Kerrigan? Well, no, the body held up for 2020. But of course, some of that, maybe all of that, or at least a lot of that, had to do with Kerrigan not being used all that much. I think Ryan Kerrigan as a situational pass rusher can still be productive. I think Ryan Kerrigan as a depth guy for Washington, you know, if God forbid Chase Young gets hurt or Montez Sweat gets hurt, you got to turn to Kerrigan uh, to be a starting edge rusher for you for a chunk of time. I think that's a beautiful scenario for Washington, but I know Ryan wants to play more and more power to him if he wants to play more, but it certainly seems to have been a slow developing market for Ryan Kerrigan, at least so far. Also on Wednesday for Washington in free agency was another defection in the secondary. Fabian Moreau reportedly has agreed on a deal with the Atlanta Falcons. And that's uh, notable, of course, because the Falcons hired Kyle Smith as vice president of player personnel in late January, right? Kyle Smith, off whatever happened between him and Ron Rivera, ended up making the lateral move going from Washington to Atlanta. So a Washington secondary that had already lost Ronald Darby to the Denver Broncos in free agency, now has lost Fabian Moreau to the Falcons in free agency. Now, Moreau, like Kerrigan, did not play very much in 2020. Fabian Moreau has always been an interesting guy to me. So he's going into his age 27 season. Washington took him in the third round of the 2017 draft out of UCLA. He was one of many Bruce Allen draft choices who was drafted in part because he fell due to injury. You know, Bruce loved to do this, take guys who had gotten hurt and came off as like value plays. You know, Washington did this with Jonathan Allen, right? He fell all the way to 17th in the 2017 draft due to some concerns about having arthritic shoulders. Also, Allen did not have a great 2017 combine. Washington got him at 17 in 2017, and that pick has worked out. Like this thing of taking guys who've gotten hurt and have fallen That's not an unreasonable way of doing the draft, and it can pan out for you. Like I said, Jonathan Allen worked out. Kendall Fuller is an example of that working out. Kendall Fuller fell to the third round in the 2016 draft due to having undergone microfracture surgery at Virginia Tech. Fuller has ended up being far better than just, you know, your run-of-the-mill third-round pick, although, of course, Washington traded him away to get Alex Smith, but then signed him back last offseason. But, you know, Fuller worked out. But some of these picks don't work out. You know, Bryce Love would be an example of a guy who fell due to injury and so far has not only not worked out, hasn't even played for Washington uh, in a game. So, yeah, this thing of taking a guy who's been hurt and has fallen, uh, that can work. That can also not work. With Fabian Moreau, I mean, he ended up being durable for Washington. So Moreau fell to the third round. He suffered a torn pec at his pro day. Uh, He also had dealt with a Liz Frank injury in his junior season at UCLA. So he falls to the third round in 2017, but ends up being largely durable for Washington. Uh, Fabian Moreau over his four seasons, 2017 through 2020, played in 60 of a possible 64 regular season games. Now, his rookie year 2017, he was mostly a special teams player. In fact, led Washington in special team snaps, Moreau did in 2017. But 2018, he played in all 16 games and on 81.32% of Washington's defensive snaps. 
2019, Moreau did miss four games. He missed the first two games of the season due to an ankle injury, and then the last two games of the season due to a hamstring injury. But Moreau this past season, 2020, did play in all 16 regular season games and in the playoff loss to Tampa Bay. But Moreau barely played. Uh, Through week 16, Fabian Moreau had played on just 12.4% of Washington's defensive snaps. Now, it's interesting. His playing time went up considerably over Washington's final two games of the season. He played on a season-high 51% of Washington's defensive snaps in that 2014 win at the Philadelphia Eagles on Sunday Night Football in Week 17 to clinch the NFC East. And Moreau in the playoff loss to the Bucs played on 31% of Washington's defensive snaps. So you wondered. I know I wondered of, hmm, maybe the coaching staff is starting to warm up to Fabian and that he played uh, quite a bit, at least by his standards, in the 2020 season in Washington's two most important games of the season, the win to clinch the division at the Eagles in Week 17, and then the playoff game against Tampa Bay. But I don't think Washington ever loved Moreau. You know, the reporting on Moreau's free agency had been that Washington had interest in bringing Moreau back. I don't know if that's, like, legit, or maybe it was more just Washington trying to help the guy out and spice up his market. But, you know, I could see maybe Washington did kind of warm up to Moreau as the season went on. Maybe Ron Rivera and Jack Doreal started to think better of Moreau as the season went on. But, uh, you know, I think you have to look at it like this. It doesn't speak well for Fabian that he barely plays in a season in which Washington's pass defense was so improved, right? Washington's pass defense in 2019 per Football Outsiders DVOA metric was just 27th in the NFL. This past season, the Washington pass defense per DVOA second in the NFL. So you make this giant leap in terms of pass defense and you do it with Moreau barely playing over the first 16 weeks of the season. Like, what does that say exactly about the importance of Moreau to the defense, right? Washington at corner in 2020, it was Kendall Fuller, it was Ronald Darby, it was Jimmy Moreland. Like, that's what you were going with. You know, when you went nickel, it was those three corners, and you often did deploy three safeties, and so you made usage, a lot of usage, right, of the likes of Cameron Curl and DeShazer Everett and Jeremy Reeves. Of course, Landon Collins is playing when he was healthy. But you did not see much of Fabian Moreau. There were many games in which Moreau didn't play at all on defense in 2020. Moreau, I think the other thing too with him is he got utilized a lot in the slot, and that was never his best spot. He was so much better, I thought, as an outside corner as compared to an inside corner. And we did see Fabian make some strides seemingly as that 2019 season went on. You go back to that 1916 win over the Detroit Lions at FedEx Field in Week 12 of the 2019 season. Moreau in that game, as you may recall, had two interceptions of the Lions quarterback, Jeff Driscoll, including a terrific leaping pick in the second quarter. Moreau on that pick was running stride for stride on the outside in man-to-man coverage with the receiver Marvin Hall and made a great-looking pick. And then the next game, the 29-21 win at the Carolina Panthers in what was Rod Rivera's final game as Panthers head coach. Moreau had a pick in that game. Uh, actually, a pick of Kyle Allen on a second and eight from the Panthers four. Moreau picked off a terrible Kyle Allen pass, returned the pick 10 yards to the Panthers one. So three picks in two games for Moreau in that 2019 stretch I just talked about. One of the picks coming against Don Ron in his final game as Panthers head coach and off Kyle Allen, who we know Ron likes so much, but not enough to sway Ron in terms of playing time for 2020 and Fabian Moreau now has gone bye-bye. So you look at Washington at corner, William Jackson III, Kendall Fuller, Jimmy Moreland, those three guys very clearly are your top three. Washington, we know, has re-signed Danny Johnson, uh, officially announced that re-signing of Johnson, 
who became an unrestricted free agent. Uh, Tuesday was the day on which the official announcement was made. But remember with Danny Johnson, we've talked about this, last season did play in 14 games in the regular season, but did not play on a single defensive snap. So Washington, it looks like, views Johnson as a kickoff return guy, but not as a corner. You do still have Greg Stroman as well. But point being, you need depth. You need a lot more depth to me at the cornerback position. Jackson, Fuller, Moreland, okay as a top three. But what if one or more gets hurt? You know, right now you're looking at beyond those three, Johnson and Stroman. Got to do better than that. Uh, I think corner very much could still be something Washington addresses in free agency. You start with linebacker at this point. Washington has still got to do work at the linebacker spot. You still got to bring in two starting caliber linebackers to me this offseason and maybe end up addressing that via the draft. But I think linebacker is number one right now in terms of what you need to address. I would still put tight end number two because you need depth beyond Logan Thomas. But I think corner's probably number three. You know, safety, at least you do have some depth to whatever extent you like landing Collins still. But you have Collins, you have Everett, you have Reeves, you have, of course, Curl, who was so good as a rookie, seventh round rookie last season. But at corner, I mean, you tell me, beyond Jackson, Fuller, and Moreland in a league in which most teams are in nickel like 70% of the time, you need not just three starting caliber corners, but you need like four or five guys who you feel good about or at least decent about. I don't know that Washington has that right now. So the NBA trade deadline is Thursday afternoon at 3 Eastern. The Wizards, they have lost 9 of 11, are 15 and 27, and are one of the worst defensive teams in the NBA as seen by that ugly 131-113 loss at the New York Knicks on Tuesday night. What will the Wizards do on Thursday? What should the Wizards do? And where the heck are we with this team? Very pleased to welcome to the Al Galdi podcast right now, Wizards insider Chase Hughes of NBC Sports Washington fresh off having just interviewed Alex Rodriguez. Any truth to the rumor that you hit on J-Lo while you were interviewing A-Rod Chase? <laughs> uh, no truth to that, but it was funny because he, he mentioned her. He told me a, a story uh, that involved Warren Buffett. That's, uh, you know, I, I want to keep some of the details of my conversation uh, private because I want I want when I drop the story you know sometimes you can kind of have something pop on your Twitter timeline so that's kind of what I want to do but he mentioned he's like yeah you know uh, I took Jennifer with me and I thought it's just kind of a, a power play to just like mention your 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 significant other and that's all you need to do is mention her first name I know who he's talking about and and she's legitimately one of the most famous people in the world he, he nailed it he, he got it well hopefully those two crazy kids are doing just fine these days we've all seen what's been out there in the news lately but it sounds like they're sticking together so that's good yeah i, d- I did not ask about that because <laughs> i told some people i'm gonna interview Alex rodriguez and they're like oh well he's in the news right now it's like yeah i, c- I can eliminate that subject out of uh the interview i did not ask him well, probably a good idea. Probably a good idea. So sorry, Al, if you were looking for some details. Well, you know what? We always like to try to break news if we can, but that's all right. We'll, <laughs> we'll, uh, we'll, we'll manage just fine. Speaking of sticking together, uh, the Wizards, do you expect them to be buyers, sellers, or basically do nothing prior to this trade deadline? I think they'll be buyers, uh, but the question is to what degree. Um, my guess is that they'll do something, but they'll do something small because they don't want to mortgage their future. Um, I don't think they want to do anything that will get in the way of the development of guys like Rui Hachimura and Denny Avdia. And my guess is that they don't want to part with uh, draft picks, the the type of asset that they really would probably have to part with to bring in something significant. So um, if they did nothing at all, that would be uh, probably the most surprising thing in my mind, just because this team, and I know it's under uh, technically a revamped front office the last year and a half, two years 
they've done a move every year since 2009. So that would break a, an over a decade long trend. They usually do something. Um, now, whether they'll be aggressive sellers or aggressive buyers, um, I don't know. I, I think the one thing that we can probably rule out is what they did in 2018 when they traded Kelly Oubre for Trevor Ariza. They traded a young player on the rise. So yes, they weren't going to resign, but they gave him up for a, a, a veteran who was over the hill on an expiring deal just to try to make the playoffs. I don't think they'll do that. I think if I had to compare it to a move that I would expect from them, maybe what they did at last year's deadline, which was uh, bring in Shabazz Napier, who they gave up Jordan McRae for, and they brought him in, and he was you know, a second, maybe a third point guard on most teams. They brought him in, and they were able to improve their defense just a little bit. So that would be my guess, the, the type of move that they'll make. So you know what so many people listening to this right now are thinking, and that is, why don't they just blow the whole thing up? I mean, the team is horrendous defensively. The record isn't good. There was that nice spurt there for a few weeks where the Wizards were playing better. But since the schedule stiffened, I mean, the Wizards have gotten all kinds of exposed. To the Wizards fan listening to this right now, it says they need to hit the nuclear button and just whack the whole thing. What say you? Well, I have a lot of thoughts on this, and part of uh, you know my opinion on it, you may disagree with, because I know you're a guy who I believe advocates for tanking. You know, uh, no matter the yes, sport. yes, yes, I, I'm I'm very much anti-tanking, uh, and, and for a lot of different reasons. But one of them is I think it's a little bit, uh, to a certain extent, fool's gold in the NBA. If you look at the top teams in the NBA, the vast majority of them didn't tank, and you could say the same thing about most of the recent NBA champions, if not all the recent NBA champions. So I think there's merit to what they want to do, which is build on what they have. And what they have in particular is Bradley Beal, who right now at 27 is the NBA's leading scorer. He's an all-star starter. He might end up being an all-NBA guy this year. And they have him under contract through next season, technically the following season, but that's a player option. So I really consider it through next season. So setting aside the tanking debate, maybe you and I can have that another day. Um, I think there's merit to, to – to the, the idea of maybe they should try doing the opposite of tanking first before they go down that road. And what I mean by that is while everyone is advocating for them to trade Bradley Beal for a bunch of draft picks and you know whatever trade package you would get in, in return, it would probably be draft picks. At least I would guess three first round picks. And I think they would also want a young ascending player on a rookie contract, kind of like what the Clippers got for Paul George, which was Shea Gildas-Alexander. They also got Danilo Gallinari and a bunch of draft picks. I don't know if you can get that much. That was an exorbitant type of deal. I don't know if you can get what the Pelicans got for Anthony Davis, but you could certainly get a lot for Bradley Beal. So what I'm saying, and I wrote this the other day, what if you, and, and yes, this sounds scary for some Wizards fans, what if you packaged a first-round pick or several first-round picks oh. and try, tried to make an aggressive trade for a guy who was either a star or a young player with star potential? And here's the reason that I think a lot of people are overlooking. As long as you have Bradley Beal under contract, then you have a, an insurance policy. You have a fail-safe option, and that option is a guy who can recoup all the stuff that you would trade plus more. Now, if you got the type of guy who was anything close to Bradley Beal, then you would have two chips in that regard where if you wanted to blow it up, you could get far more draft picks than you already have right now. So what I would do is I would try to aggressively – or I think what I think they should do but, or think about doing is aggressively try to get Bradley Beal help and see if you can make it work for the next calendar year, which I think the decision time would be the next trade deadline. And if it doesn't work, then you've got this fail-safe option to blow it up and recoup as many draft picks as any team, 
GM would want. Even Sam Presti would have enough draft picks out of that. So actually, what you're saying makes sense. And I I like it from a standpoint of like, to me in sports, you got to either be all in or all out. You got to sort of pick a lane and then just be totally committed to it. That would represent total commitment to a specific direction, i.e. we're in it to win it. You know, we're going for it. We're committing to Beal and trying to build around him and see where this takes us. I guess the question, though, is this. What do you have here? Like, you know, I I think we've all been kind of seduced into thinking that this team could be better than it ever could have been. Like, when they made that trade for Russell Westbrook, I know I was among the many. It was like, okay, this will be like a five or a six seed in the Eastern Conference, maybe something higher. They haven't been close to that this season. So have we kind of maybe just overestimated what they do have here? And, you know, even if they do go all in and do make a trade along the lines of what you just suggested, what truly is the realistic ceiling with this group? I definitely think we overestimate. I mean, I was, and and myself included, I was among the group that really praised that trade. I thought it was a no-brainer at the time. And Russell Westbrook has, you know, he's got his faults and those faults have led to losses, I think. But ultimately, you know, you brought in a guy who doesn't have the injury history, who's still putting up monster numbers. And, you know, John Wall does have that injury history. So you gave yourself a little bit more certainty and you 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 changed the calculus. Which, and I think it was time for a change, you know, to try something new. Um, but clearly, I and a lot of people overestimated what this team was capable of. And, you know, Thomas Bryant was lost for the year. I think that really hurt them, particularly their offense. They have one of the least efficient offenses when I thought they'd have one of the best. Um, they can't shoot threes. I think they've missed that from him. He's one of the most accurate three-point shooting uh, centers in the league. And then they had their COVID outbreak and, of course, Russell Westbrook uh, being injured early on. So there were some built-in excuses for a while. And I think a lot of those excuses were honestly undersold to a certain degree by myself and by other people. But now the dust is kind of settled from that. And, yes, uh, they're banged up right now. You know, Ish Smith and Davis Bertans are out of the lineup. But we saw them win seven of eight games. We saw them beat some of the best teams in the league. And the COVID outbreak is, is now like two months removed. So, we're now really seeing what this team is, and it's nowhere near as, as good as we thought it was. So I definitely think we're over we overestimated to an extent. I think what they have is they have Bradley Beal, they have uh, Russell Westbrook, who is um, you know he's got a, a huge contract. He's 32 years old. He's he's not a perfect player, um, so you have those things have to be mentioned. But they also have Rui Hachimura, who I think is a really good player. I think he's better than a lot of people give him credit for, and I think Danny Avdia's long term ceiling is very very good. I think. Davis Bertans has been through a lot so far this season, so you do have him. And then you have some first-round picks. You traded one of them. It's heavily protected in the John Wall trade, but that's pretty much what you got. And then there's some other sort of tertiary pieces. So the ceiling, as constituted, um, doesn't look all that high in the short term. As good as Bradley Beal is, um, you know, you're not winning games with the way he's playing with the, the supporting cast that you have. So I think it's, it's come time where if you look at this trade deadline – uh, you know, can you sit with what you have through the rest of the season? I think you've seen enough to know that you got to make a move one way or the other, whether it's, you know, become some become sellers to some small degree or maybe a greater degree or become buyers and become more aggressive, kind of like what you alluded to pick a lane, um, you know, trade something for something substantial and then give it the rest of the season and then go into the offseason and see what you have. Um, I think they kind of need to, to start taking a little bit more risks one way or the other. Um, because right now, I think as the dust has settled, you, you you can see the ceiling for this team, and it's nowhere near as high as we thought. I agree with you on Hachimura and Avdi. I, I want to get to Bertans in, in a bit here. 
When it comes to Scott Brooks, though, uh, I tell you, I mean, for a while, I thought he was going to get fired in season. And obviously, that has not happened. At least it hasn't happened yet. It's the final year of that five-year contract. He's making $7 million per year. Um, Very tellingly, you know, hasn't been extended or anything like that. I know a lot of the fan base is over it with him and wants somebody in here. Do you think Brooks lasts the rest of this season? I think he's not going anywhere anytime soon. Now, whether he lasts the rest of the season, I think to me that would come a question of, you know, maybe it's the final week of the season or the final two weeks of the season. And, you know, maybe at that point um, they find the timing would be right to part ways. Um, But, you know, Scott Brooks has a really longstanding and and good relationship with GM Tommy Shepard. I I don't think that this is going to be a situation where they leave him on the tarmac like Lane Kiffin if they did want to. Make a move there. I think they would do it in the most respectful way possible. And maybe that's letting him coach through the end of the season and then just sort of have a mutual parting of ways. The contract runs out. Now, the mer- the the reasoning for, you know, maybe letting him go a week or two early is maybe you could see what someone on your staff has or give someone an opportunity. Um, you know, Robert Pack, maybe if they ever wanted to make a change, he's someone who would interest me um, as a, a guy who I used to watch play, you know, when he was with the Bullets. I loved uh, his mindset on the floor. I think he's a really smart guy. Uh, you know, he was a um, he was a coach of theirs in the summer league a few years back. Um, so he ha- he does have that experience. He has no head coaching experience. So maybe you know the front office could see as a, a small development opportunity. But I think we're still a little ways away from them kind of arriving at that point where it's like, okay, you know, maybe we should just start playing our young players and let the veterans take a seat. Um, you know, you would probably see a pretty dramatic shift if that were to happen also in the way they handled their rotation. So, um, yeah, I, I guess my, my guess is that obviously things aren't, aren't going the way they would like and that he won't be coaching next year. Um, but my guess at this point would probably be that he coaches through the end of the season, I would say. So the Wizards have many problems. You mentioned the offense. It's not very efficient. It's not a very good three-point shooting team. But obviously the defense remains the thing with this team. The defense is horrendous. We saw that again in that loss at the Knicks on Tuesday night. And, you know, it always cracks me up, Chase, because like after games like that, you get people saying the right things. And, you know, Bradley Beal talks about we have to play with more dog, play with more heart, things like that. They say what you want to hear, but they don't like put those words into action, it feels like ever, or certainly not nearly enough. If you had to bottom line it, why this team is so bad defensively? Why is it? Is it personnel? Is it coaching? Like, like what exactly is the issue with why this team can't do the thing that everyone understands it needs to do so much better? I think it's personnel. Um, You know, the way they've built this roster, I think there's a lot of offense-oriented players. You know, Bradley Beal um, is one of the most complete offensive players in the NBA, but defense has not been his strong suit. I think he's capable of being a good defender. um, But, you know, in this day and age, uh, guys who score like him oftentimes um, don't have a big role defensively. And, you know, that's not really asked of them. Um, You know, Bertans is a completely offense-oriented player. Um, you know, there's other guys in, in the rotation who I could f- feel like you could say the same about, you know, Rui Hachimura, very much an offense oriented player. Maybe over time he, be- he can become a defender. They just don't have a lot of two way guys or a lot of um, physical defenders. They don't have a rim protector to the degree that a lot of other teams have, uh, you know, a young guy who's 6'11", who's bouncy, who has long arms and good instincts. They just don't have that. Um, And I think it goes back to the way they've drafted and the way they've put their roster together. The way they envisioned this team to succeed and win games was to be the fastest team in the league, which they are, but to also be a very good shooting team and score a lot of points so that their defense, you know, there's more of a margin for error, but the offense hasn't been there. So it's really exposed 
the in the deficiency deficiencies in their defense. Um, so I think it's going to take a, a long term goal, a long term commitment from the front office and the way they build their roster. They've like in the off the last off season, the off season before was all offense. All the moves they made were offense oriented. So I saw I thought last off season, you know, maybe they would look at the other end of the floor a little bit more. And the moves they made were just a little bit too marginal to make a major difference. Like Howell Neto is a very good defender, but is a second or third point guard. Robin Lopez is a pretty good defender. You know, he was an upgrade uh, over what they had. Same with Alex Len, but not as a starting center. Neither of those guys. So I think they need to draft rim protectors and physical wing defenders or go out and find those guys. And until they do, um, you know, they're not going to have a good defense. And one final point on this is if you have a guy like Bradley Beal, I think he's good enough. He's good enough of a player where you should think of like what you can do to tailor the roster around him to overcome his weaknesses, to to maximize his strengths. Kind of like, you know, when uh, Orlando had Dwight Howard, you know, they surrounded him with shooters. Right. Same thing has been done in Milwaukee with Giannis. It's like he can't really shoot from the outside. So they just put four shooters on the floor with him. Uh, Allen Iverson in the early 2000s, the Sixers uh, put defenders around him and guys who could spread the floor. Um, I think they need to build the roster like that if they want to maximize Bradley Beal's talents. And and they haven't really done that. They've just kind of added other fast guys who can push the pace and score. want to get your take on Bertans. Out with this right calf strain, has had a rough season off the Wizards, of course, re-signing him to that six-year, $80 million contract. And I advocated strongly for the Wizards to re-sign him. He was so good for them last season and also in his final season with the San Antonio Spurs. What do you make of what's happened here? I mean, so far, it's not gone well. I mean, do we just write that off to injury? And I know initially he was like, I'm not in proper conditioning to begin the season. You know, I'm trying to understand why exactly that was the case. Or do you think this is quickly becoming a regrettable contract for the Wizards? You know, I don't think we're there yet. I, I think it does have to be uh, noted just the the quantity of injuries he's dealt with already this season. You know, it dawned on me the other day, he left a game, he left several games recently before he went down for two weeks with the calf injury. And he went out of the game for a calf injury and they showed him on the TV broadcast and, he had, and they showed that he had a big bandage over his left eye, which was stitched up. And it's like, those are two of like six things that he's done <laughs> so far this season. Like he had the visa issue and he, and I think him being out of shape coming into training camp, I do not excuse that at all. Even though it's COVID and he was in Latvia, uh, you know, you just signed an $80 million deal. There's, there's ways to stay in shape. Right. Um, but then, you know, he, he had COVID and he had the toughest bout with COVID probably of anyone on the team. You know, the New York times did a great expose on all the things that the players went through. And, and he was one of the guys who was symptomatic and it really affected his conditioning. You know, um, I think we know a lot more than we did a year ago about COVID-19, but there's some things that are just going to be undefined. And that is, you know, how does it affect a professional basketball player when you miss several weeks and then have to go play against some of the best athletes in the world and the best conditioned athletes in the world. And um, so I think that was a factor. He's, he's had a knee injury. He's had a calf injury. Um, all the while he shot a, a close to 39% from three on decent volume. So it's not 42, 43% from three, which you're expecting from him. But it's still not terrible. But the problem is when he's not making threes, uh, then you look at his game and it's like, well, what else can this guy do? I mean, there's really nothing else that he can do besides be a decoy at that point. Now, the one thing I will say is, um, you know, if you look at the advanced uh, tracking data, um, he's still getting as many open shots as he did last year. He's just not hitting them at nearly the percentage. You know, he, when he was wide open last year, he knocked down like 47% of his threes. When he was open, it was like 43%. Now it's like when he's open, it's like 37, 38%. And when he's wide open, it's like 40%. So 
as long as he can be in condition and, and now that he's got this several weeks long break, um, I, I think those shots will fall. And I think it, since it's only been half a season, the hope would be that, you know, things will course correct. And if he is to get anything close to the percentage that we're used to seeing from him in recent years, then that means he's due for a monster finish to the season. One more for you. So, of course, we do look at the Wizards through this prism of the youth and kind of trying to build something up. Troy Brown Jr. basically doesn't play anymore. Wizards spent a 15th overall pick on him in 2018. Of course, that was an Ernie Grunfeld selection, not a Tommy Shepard selection. But Troy Brown is in that, you know, Jan Mahinmi, Jan Vesely territory of its DNPCD, like night after night after night. I mean, he played the other night against the Knicks, but like beyond that, it's been like one DNPCD after another. Is Troy Brown Jr. already a bust, or is he simply just a bust in the eyes of Scott Brooks? And maybe if there's a new head coach next season, maybe Troy Brown can find himself. You know, that, that's a, a really good question. Um, whether he's a bust, I was just thinking about the other day, you know, because 15th overall, it's not like you picked him third overall. He's also only 21 years old. Um, you know, people, I think, need to remember that he was 18 when he got drafted. He was one of those guys who had just one of those birthdays uh, that, that had him be young for a freshman in college when he was at Oregon. Um, but certainly... You know, he has not uh, developed as quickly as they would have hoped, and he's completely out of the rotation. I, I think there's a little bit of a, a, a disconnect between who in the building likes him and who in the building has kind of given up on him. I think he's got more fans in the front office than he does on the coaching staff. You know, him and, and I think Tommy Shepard goes way back with his AAU coach, um, and, you know, he did a lot of the legwork in terms of um, – you know, researching his character. So I know Tommy Shepard's a big fan of Troy Brown Jr.'s and he picked up his contract option for next season. So he is under contract through next year, whether that means he'll be here or elsewhere. Um, they did pick up that option, which was indicative of what they think of, you know, still the potential that he has. But it just hasn't happened for him. Uh, I don't think he's as aggressive of a player as they would like to have seen from him. I don't think he's as physical as, as a defender as they would like to see from him. Um, you know, some of the, th the trajectory of his numbers suggests that there's potential there. You know, he's become a really good corner three-point shooter. He's a really good rebounder. Uh, you can see the passing when he's on the floor. Um, but the long-term concerns I would have from him is that he's just not very fast uh, for his position. Um, and he's not a very physical defender. So uh, does he have the athleticism to be a long-time NBA player? I think he's going to have to become an even better shooter, a much better shooter, really, to stay on the floor and stay in the league. Um, so it, it's really tough to say. I, I think that if he is under, if he does stick around next year and they don't trade him, um, then a new coaching staff would probably be a, a good thing for him because I think he would probably have a, a fresh chance and a, and a new start. Um, but right now it doesn't seem like he has a future with this team or w within this rotation other than playing during garbage time. Yeah, no doubt. Well, great stuff, Chase. It's great to catch up with you. We'll certainly be following you and reading your work on NBCSportsWashington.com with whatever the Wizards end up doing by the trade deadline. And if there's a headline in the New York Post of A-Rod and J-Lo having more problems, we know who to blame, pal. It's going to be you. So just be prepared for that. <laughs> All right. Thanks a lot, Al, man. We'll have to do this again. All right. Great to talk to you, man. So here we are on this Thursday, March 25th, now one week away from opening day in baseball. One week from tonight, Thursday night, April 1st, Nationals Park. It is the New York Mets at the Washington Nationals, a 7.09 first pitch, Max Scherzer versus Jacob deGrom, and the season will be off and running. Now, what about game number two for the Nationals against the Mets? in the regular season. Is Steven Strasburg going to be good to go? 
It was in Strasbourg's second exhibition start this Grapefruit League season that he suffered this left calf strain, but it was on Wednesday evening that Steven Strasburg was back out there pitching, pitching for the first time since that left calf strain was suffered two Sunday afternoons ago, March 14th. Strasburg, in what ended up being an 11-8 loss to the Houston Astros, uh, didn't look very good, but he made it through the outing healthy, which is really what matters the most. The results, though, weren't pretty. Four runs in four innings on three hits, two doubles and a single, and five walks versus just one strikeout on 83 pitches. And maybe this was as bad as anything. Strasburg induced just two swing and misses the entire outing. The performance wasn't good. But as we all know, with these exhibition starts, it's not really about the outcomes. It's more about the process, right? It's more about like, does the guy make it out healthy? Does the guy feel like he's doing okay? How is the guy doing from a velocity standpoint? I mean, one strikeout over four innings is not Strasburg-esque. And the five walks, I think, aren't (laughs) clearly what you want to be seeing. But he made it through the outing healthy. Uh, And we learned this, which I think really heightens what he may well have been dealing with. So initially, we were told left calf strain. It actually turns out that Steven Strasburg suffered a ruptured tendon in the left calf. Now, that sounds worse than it was. It was not like a ruptured Achilles tendon or anything like that. It was a ruptured plantaris tendon. But as has been the case with so many other Nationals injuries over the years, we're told something initially, and then it ends up being something at least somewhat different. You know, John Lester this spring training, same kind of thing. We're initially told he's having his thyroid removed. Then it turns out, well, no, actually, it was a parathyroid that was removed. Now, I mean, it's similar, and you could say, well, you know, Galdi, you're getting kind of caught up in the semantics. Maybe, but that is different. Like, anyone who's a doctor understands that. You have four parathyroids, and then you have the thyroid. And it was initially said, well, he's having his thyroid removed, and then it came out, well, no, actually, it was one of these four parathyroids that you have. So anyway, uh, Strasbourg, it turns out, dealt with a ruptured tendon in the left calf, but it's really not that big of a deal. And it looks like he came out of this third Grapefruit League outing just fine from a health standpoint. Although again, the results were not pretty. I mean, you know, we shouldn't just gloss over that. Uh, So the way things set up now, Strasbourg is going to have one more tune-up before the regular season begins. If he stays on a five-day schedule, he would pitch in Monday's exhibition game, another one of these games against the Astros. And then Strasburg would be set to start either April 3rd or April 4th against the Mets at Nationals Park. Game one is April 1st. Then you get that traditional off day after opening day. And then you have games Saturday and Sunday of that weekend. So it's not considered a given that Strasburg starts game two, but maybe ends up starting uh, game three. We'll see. But I, I think overall, like the good news is it looks like this left calf thing is not something that the Nationals need to worry about. Of course, Strasburg's health is always something on your mind. He only made the two starts in 2020. He underwent that season-ending surgery late August of 2020 to alleviate carpal tunnel neuritis. And there's a bigger picture, of course, as we all know, with Steven Strasburg. Now, the last 162-game season, Strasburg was durable, right? 2019, he made 33 regular season starts. He led the National League, Strasburg did, with 209 innings in the regular season. Like, keep that in mind. It's not just that he made 33 starts in 2019 in the regular season. Strasburg that season led the National League in innings pitched in the regular season. And then, of course, came what happened in the postseason. Strasburg becoming an all-time D.C. sports legend, winning World Series MVP. But the previous four years, 2015 through 2018, Strasburg averaged just 24.3 regular season starts per year. Like, the narrative on him of he's been hurt a lot is not not true. Like, it is fair. It is accurate. He has been hurt a lot 
in his career. I think he's become a tougher player as seen as what he did in that 2019 postseason. But the guy's body has been through a lot. Like he's had a lot of these minor, weird, nagging things that have caused him to miss time over the years. Like with Strasburg, it's not just a Tommy John conversation. It's stuff with the calf and the trapezius muscle and things like that. So you hope that those things don't happen. You hope that the guy, uh, first of all, stays hydrated because we know he sweats like a hog and like that has gotten to him at times when it's hot out there. <laughs> but but we hope that he stays healthy and that he pitches because it's very hard to see the Nats doing well in 2021 without a healthy Steven Strasburg, right? We've got to see something at the level of 2019 or close to the level of 2019 in terms of Strasburg durability for the Nationals in 2021 to do as we want them to do. Now, a couple of other things from this exhibition game against the Astros on Wednesday evening. So we've been talking about the Nats bullpen and how all of a sudden it's not nearly as deep as we thought it might be. Will Harris blood clot in the right arm. Tanner Rainey is coming off that muscle strain near his right collarbone. Jeremy Jeffress uh, weirdly, bizarrely cut just a few weeks after being signed. You do have Brad Hand though, right? Brad Hand, I love this acquisition. Late January, one year, 10.5 million dollar contract. Brad Hand has been very good over the last five seasons with the Cleveland Indians and the San Diego Padres. 320 innings and in ERA at 270 at strikeouts per nine innings of 12.2. Actually led the majors hand did in saves in 2020 with the Indians with 16. Well, Brad Hand uh, got smoked on two, on Wednesday evening. Four runs in one third of an inning on four hits, which were four consecutive one-out singles in the top of the six. Now, singles don't really trouble you all that much, and I'm not here to tell you that you should be troubled by what Brad Hand did on Wednesday evening. But I would say this, and again, spring training, exhibition season, how much are you supposed to take from any of this stuff? Uh, Brad Hand in this exhibition season has an ERA of 13.5. Not very good. No, Steve Spurrier, that's not good. Brad Hand in this exhibition season, five into third innings, he's given up nine runs, eight earned. He's given up 11 hits and five walks. It's not been good so far. Not very good. Maybe he's just working on things. Maybe he's just feeling himself. Maybe none of this matters. But it is worth pointing out, Brad Hand has been atrocious so far (laughs) in this Grapefruit League season, okay? So let's not just pretend like everything's been fine with Brad Hand. Hopefully ends up up being just fine. He does have a track record, right? Mike Rizzo loves to say this. Look at the back of the guy's baseball card. But Brad Hand so far, not so good in this exhibition season. So I did want to point that out. On the positive side, though, two guys who've been excellent have been Josh Bell and Ryan Zimmerman. And they were at it again on Wednesday evening. Bell and Zimmerman were the Nationals numbers four and five batters. Uh, Bell was a starting first baseman. Zimmerman was a starting DH. And those two guys on Wednesday evening combined for three hits and five RBI, hit back-to-back two-out homers in the top of the first. There are those who have struggled for the Nets this exhibition season, right? Just highlighted one in Brad Hand. Uh, you know, the truth is Juan Soto and Trey Turner have struggled so far this exhibition season. But two guys who have killed it are Bell and Zimmerman. Josh Bell, over 46 plate appearances this exhibition season, a batting average of 385, an on-base percentage of 457, a slugging percentage of 897. He has smashed five homers, Bell has in this exhibition season. Great sign for a guy who's coming off a bad 2020. But remember, Bell had a monster 2019, and he was very solid as a hitter 
2016 through 2018, right? Nationals traded for Bell uh, from the Pittsburgh Pirates this past Christmas Eve. So Josh Bell, at least so far, looks like a guy who's poised to bounce back from what was a rough 2020. Ryan Zimmerman, of course, did not play in 2020, opted out of the season due to the COVID-19 pandemic. We all know about Zim's injury history, but how about the job that he's done in Grapefruit League play so far? A mere 21 plate appearances, five home runs. The guy's got five homers in just 21 plate appearances. His slugging percentage this exhibition season is 1,368. That's great for an OPS. That's just Zimmerman's slugging percentage so far this exhibition season. So Zim has looked outstanding. I really am excited for what the Nationals could end up having here at first base this year. You know, some teams do first base as, hey, we have our guy, he's out there for 155 games, and he slaughters you. You know, think about like Freddie Freeman. Think about Jose Abreu, people like that. But you don't have to do first base or any position that way. You can do a timeshare. You can have a platoon set up. And this Josh Bell-Ryan Zimmerman situation sets up beautifully for a platoon situation. Josh Bell is a switch hitter who has been much better against righties than he's been against lefties. Zimmerman has been much better against lefties than he's been against righties. Josh Bell is someone who, like we said, is coming off a down 2020, so he's not a certainty. But Josh Bell facing mostly righties sets up to play about 75% of the time. Right-handed pitching makes up about 75% of the pitching in baseball. That's a perfect thing for Zimmerman, who we know has been hurt a lot, is older, and probably should be playing more than, say, 25% of the time or so in the upcoming season. You know, it's not unlike Howie Kendrick, you know, Howie played more than that, but, you know, older guy can still be productive, but you got to limit his time out there because the body can only hold up, withstand so much at this point. So Bell against righties, Zimmerman against lefties. If you combine Josh Bell's 2019 stats against right-handed pitching and Ryan Zimmerman's 2019 stats against left-handed pitching, here's what you get. A combined 30 home runs, a combined OPS of 997. That would be outstanding for the Nationals in 2021. You get that kind of production out of the first base position. Don't get caught up in, do you have a starting first baseman? Do you have an everyday first baseman? You don't have to do the position that way. You don't have to do any position that way. See the Tampa Bay Rays. They platoon you to death, but the overall production at each spot ends up being quite good. The Nationals could end up having that this year at first base. I mean, if Bell and Zimmerman combine for, say, 30 homers and a 997 OPS, you're in that Freddie Freeman, Jose Abreu territory. Like, you're in that neighborhood of high-level offensive production from what's supposed to be a high-level offensively producing position of first base. So I really like what the Nats have set up here with Bell and Zimmerman at first. The Nats did not give up a lot to get Josh Bell. You know, that, that, that sets up to be another one of these steals by the ninja, Mike Rizzo. And so far, Bell and Zimmerman have been outstanding in this exhibition season. One more thing on the Nats, in case you're curious, Carter Keboom was back out there as the Nats starting third baseman on Wednesday evening off Starling Castro. Very interestingly, having been the Nats starting third baseman for the previous exhibition game. Keyboom on Wednesday evening, 0 for 2 with a couple of walks. And we'll wrap things up on this Thursday installment of the Al Galdi podcast, talking some Orioles who, like the Nationals, were in action in an exhibition game on Wednesday evening. Dean Kramer was the Orioles starting pitcher. Dean Kramer is one of the guys who the O's got from the Los Angeles Dodgers in the Manny Machado trade in July 2018, Dean Kramer, along with Keegan Aiken and John Means, considered to be a part 
of the Orioles season opening rotation. But you don't know until you know. And Kramer was coming off a bad outing this past Friday evening, an 11-9 Grapefruit League win over the Pittsburgh Pirates. Five runs in three and the third innings on five hits, including a homer and two doubles, two walks, and a wild pitch versus three strikeouts. He threw just 42 of his 71 pitches for strikes. Well, Kramer on Wednesday evening was a lot better. A 2-0 loss to the Boston Red Sox, two runs in four and two-thirds innings, five strikeouts versus five hits, a homer and four singles, a walk and a balk. So I think Kramer's going to be a part of that Orioles season opening rotation. I mean, truth be told, you know, the Orioles aren't exactly uh, oozing with options uh, to be a part of that rotation. We, we, we are not in the midst of Jim Palmer, Dave McNally, Mike Cuellar, and Pat Dobson here, okay? Things are a little different these days with the Orioles. Kramer is a promising arm. You know, he's not some slam dunk prospect or anything like that, but the guy's got talent, and I think you want to see what you have in him in this upcoming season. Now, the manager, Brandon Hyde, on Wednesday did say that the O's don't know whether they're breaking camp with five or six starters and whether the team will be carrying 13 or 14 pitchers. So there are some things to be figured out with that season opening roster. I would say it to you like this, though, especially with the Orioles, who we know have become so much more analytically inclined, not just because of the hiring of Mike Elias as executive vice president and general manager, but remember, another key guy in the Orioles front office is Sig Dell, who is the assistant general manager in charge of analytics. He's a really bright guy, really forward-thinking guy, a guy who's done a lot of good work in the field of sabermetrics over the years around Major League Baseball. Sig Meidel used to work for NASA, in case you didn't know. Prior to beginning his baseball career, Meidel worked for NASA as a biomathematician. So this is the extent to which the O's have gone all in on analytics. And I love this. I think this is exactly what the Orioles needed to do. Yes, the rebuild takes time, and there's no guarantee that the rebuild works out the way these total teardown rebuilds work for, say, the Chicago Cubs and the Houston Astros. But this, to me, is the way to go. But here's the point I'm trying to make with the pitching here. You know, I, I think we're really starting to get away in Major League Baseball from starters and relievers. Like, I, I think more and more teams are just having pitchers. The Milwaukee Brewers a few years ago started referring to their pitchers as outgetters. You know, and, and I think that's such a great way of looking at it. Because especially now, with so many starting pitchers not lasting beyond twice through the lineup, you know, not lasting beyond, say, four or five innings, especially now with this onset of the opener phenomenon that the Tampa Bay Rays pioneered a few years ago, where you start the game with a flame-throwing reliever, and then you go to the guy who's supposed to be your quote-unquote starter. Like, the, the, the line has never been blurred more between starting pitchers and relief pitchers. And so if you're a team like the Orioles, which isn't very good to begin with, and you're trying to find your way and you're trying to figure out who's good and who isn't good, I think this is such an opportunity, right, to experiment with this stuff and to try things like openers, to try things like tandem starts, where, say, you start a pitcher, he's only going to go, say, three or four innings, and then you're going to bring in another guy for whom the plan is to go three or four innings. And the Orioles have done stuff like this over the last few years with Elias, with Mydell, with Hyde uh, on board. But the, the O's, to me, still are a team that just reeks of, hey, you have this wide-open blank canvas figure some stuff out, experiment with some stuff, innovate, you know, try to do things differently and maybe in a better way than they're being done already. So like, yeah, who is going to be a part of the rotation? I mean, you do have interest in that, you know, again, it's probably going to be Means, Aiken, Kramer, and then two other guys. Um, You know, is it going to be, say, Matt Harvey, who's looked probably the best out of the three reclamation projects for the O so far, Harvey, Wade LeBlanc, and Felix Hernandez, who's injured, he's been dealing with with right elbow discomfort. But, you know, I, I think about somebody like this guy, Bruce Zimmerman, who we talked about recently on the podcast. So Bruce Zimmerman is a lefty. The O's acquired Zimmerman 
from the Atlanta Braves in July 2018 and that trade that sent Kevin Gaussman and Darren O'Day to the Braves. And Bruce Zimmerman has looked great so far this exhibition season. Three games, nine scoreless innings with 10 strikeouts. Like he's been terrific. Hyde, during his virtual postgame press conference on Sunday, March 14th, said about Zimmerman, quote, I see him as a starting rotation candidate. So like, yeah, Zimmerman has been used in relief, but he sort of could start a game for you. Like, I think the results sort of tell you that maybe this guy should be starting games for you. So well, it's going to be interesting to see how the Orioles do this. That That is the one good thing when you are a tanking team, as the Orioles have been for a few years now, and you're engaged in this total teardown rebuild process. You're not beholden to actually trying to win, which I know sounds ridiculous, right? It's sports, but you, you know, you, it's not like you are trying to make the playoffs that year and you got to go all in and every game is do or die. It's, hey, we're trying to grow. We're trying to be better. And yes, we do want to win. It's not like they're going out there and telling players to purposely try to lose, but winning and losing, you know, the record is not the end-all be-all for the Orioles in 2021, right? We all recognize that. So why not try some different things? openers, tandem starts, bullpen games, things like that, and just kind of see what works and who rises to the occasion and who doesn't. But it was good to see Kramer do well. And whatever role he or anyone else ends up being in, you got to get outs. You got to get good pitching. You know, the Orioles have been so bad at developing pitching for so long. You hope that's in the process of changing with guys like Kramer and Aiken and Grayson Rodriguez and D.L. Hall in the pipeline. So we'll see. That's probably as big of a deal as anything over the next year or so. What becomes of the young starting pitching? You have some very exciting position playing prospects for the Orioles, to be sure, right? Adley Rutschman, Heston Kerstad, Ryan Mountcastle, etc. But pitching, man, if you can't pitch, if you can't prevent runs, it's very hard to win in baseball. Uh, can you get better pitching? However you end up deploying those pitchers, an obvious big issue for the Orioles moving forward. All right, that will do it for you and me for now. Keep the feedback coming. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. I am very interested in your takes, in your opinions, and your reactions to the development with the Danny on Wednesday. I really don't think you can overstate what Wednesday ended up being a major day in Washington football team history from a standpoint of massive change that we thought could be coming. And instead, one more time, it's like the exact opposite ends up happening, where not only is the guy staying, he's being empowered more than ever before. Have a great rest of your Thursday. I'll talk to you on Friday. I need you to... It's over. What happened? I won. <laughs>